That was our very own Matt Dobson doing all those different things. Wasn't that impressive? Matt used to be a part of a ministry called the Power Team. They would go from school to school and city to city, and they would put on these big shows, and they would destroy stuff and tell people about Jesus, and literally thousands of people gave their lives to Christ. So we knew he was once on Power Team, so I said, do you still have what it takes? Do you still have the power to roll up a skillet? And evidently he does, to be honest with you. That was quite impressive right there. I liked how proud he was, like, yeah, I just rolled up a skillet. And those were legitimate props, I can tell you that right now. Each week we'll be showing something different. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you're here today in the room. I'm also thankful for those of you who are watching on the stream and at home on TV. And also all of our multi-site campuses, we're so grateful for you all around the state of New Mexico and in Belize. We're glad that everybody's a part of the Sagebrush family. We are in the middle of a series called Pressure Point. We're going through the book study in the book of James, so let's get right into it. Into it. Steve Farrar is a pastor in the Dallas area. Midweek on a Wednesday morning, he has a Bible study where about, I don't know, several hundreds of men gathered together. At one particular Bible study, he asked the men a question. He said, What is the greatest giant that you can face? What is the greatest giant? That you can face. And then he had them popcorn, different answers that they would give. And so they began to share their different answers. And they said, well, pride is a great big giant. So he wrote it down on the board. Lying is a great big giant. Pornography is a great big giant. And Farrar stopped him and said, guys, those are excellent, excellent answers. But none of those are the greatest giant. What is the greatest giant? And so they began to popcorn some more, and they talked about selfishness and lust and greed, then addiction to alcohol or addiction to drug or fear. And Farrar stopped him again. He said, guys, I really appreciate every answer you gave me. None of those are superficial. All of those are absolutely gut-wrenching, but that is not the right answer. What is the biggest giant? And he said, let me answer it for you. It's God. And when he said that, there was a hush that fell over the entire room because the men began to process that answer. If you process that answer, do you understand the implications of that answer? It means no matter what you face, God is greater still. No matter what you face, no matter what temptation, no matter what thing continues to taunt you, try to ruin you, try to wreck your life, God is greater still. God can overcome all of those things when you will surrender it over to his control. Well, we're continuing our study in the book of James, and now James is going to write a section of scripture about temptation and about sin. Now, whenever we talk about temptation, it's important for us to understand three different terms. First term is this, a trial, and the second is a test, and the third is temptation. A trial is a difficulty that happens as a result of the fact that we live in a sin-soaked world. Remember a few months ago we did that series, It's Not Supposed to Be This Way, and we said everything is broken as a result of sin. Sin has destroyed everything. So we go through trials, there's sicknesses and diseases, there's natural disasters. All those things came to be a part of our world when we rejected God. So that's what a trial is. A test is something that's sent by God to develop our faith so we'd be mature and complete and we would persevere to the very in. Now, we talked a little bit about that last week, that God wants us to have this defiant faith. 
That even when adversity comes and knocks us to the ground, we get back up again because he got back up for us. So that's what a test is. And then we have a temptation. Now, temptations come to destroy our lives. Now, there's two primary sources of temptations that come our way. The first primary source is Satan. Now, I know some of you probably don't think that there is actually a being out there called Satan. I think we'll all agree that there is a force of evil in our world today. The Bible says that force of evil, what's behind it, is Satan. He's an archangel that has fallen, and he wants to steal. According to Jesus, he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And I think he's doing a pretty effective job, don't you? He wants to steal your life. He wants to kill you. He wants to destroy you. You know what his ultimate goal is? It's to get you to play the part of the fool. He will lure you. He will tempt you. And he'll know just how to do it. Because he watches you. He and his demons take notes on you. And they're looking for your point of greatest vulnerability. And then they will attack you relentlessly in that place of vulnerability. And here's what's interesting. He's in no rush to get you. He'll play the long game and he will come on you like a flood where you won't even think you have time to even think through what it is that you're doing. And you'll end up on the other side and say, what in the world was I thinking? And I bet every one of us have had moments like that. Now, that's one of the primary sources where temptation comes from. You ready for the second one? They come from your own evil desires that lurk inside of you. They come from your sin nature. Now, this isn't too hard to believe, is it? Let me talk to the parents here for just a second. Uh, uh, You wanted a child, didn't you? Yeah, that's what you did. You wanted a child. And nine months you waited and you prayed for that child. And then push them out, shove them out, way out. Boom, chakalaka. The baby comes out, right? And you're so excited for the child. You feed the child. You take care of the child. You nurture the child. And all you want is you want to get them to that stage where they can walk and they can talk. So you can tell them to sit down and shut up. Isn't that how that goes right there? That's how that works in parenting. That's how that works. It doesn't take a parent very long to know that's just a little sinner you gave birth to. That's all that is. Because everything's theirs, isn't it? Everything is theirs. Mine, 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 mine. And they don't want to share anything. And that little sinner hadn't, hadn't spent a dime buying anything. Nothing's theirs, but they think everything is theirs. And if they're not the center of attention, boy, they'll let you know it. Even before they can say words, they'll grunt and moan and groan. They'll kick, they'll scream, they'll fuss, they'll feud till they get what they want because they're nothing more than a little sinner. That's who they are. Then that little sinner grows up to be a medium-sized sinner. You know that. When my oldest daughter, Mackenzie, was seven years old, I was looking out my back window in my backyard, and I saw that she was over on the wall. She had taken a chair and then she had climbed the chair. But now I'm my wall, six, seven, eight feet tall. So she climbs the chair. She can't get it to the top of the wall at this age. And so she climbs on top of the chair. And then she kind of jumps off the top of the chair and somehow raises herself up. And now she's kind of teeter-tottering on the top of the wall. And I said to myself, I said, self, I said, yeah, I said, that's not good. Because she's over teeter-tottering on the wall because she wants to talk to the boys on the other side of the wall. I should have known at this point in time that I was in trouble. You understand what I'm saying? So I came out, and, I, and she's teeter-tottering talking to those boys. I said, Mackenzie, how are you planning on getting down? She said, I don't know. I said, well, let me get you down right now. So I got her down. I said, I said, Kenzie, this is dangerous. 
There was no way you were going to be able to get back down. You're going to be teeter-tottering for the rest of the days of your life. You would have died up there teeter-tottering. Nobody would come up there and fed you with teeter-tottering like that. I said, listen, don't ever do that again. I don't want you to get hurt. I don't ever take the chair from the table. Don't put it by the wall. Don't stand on the chair. Don't jump off the chair up there and teeter-totter back and forth talking to the boys. Do you understand the words coming out of my mouth right now? Do you hear these words? Uh-huh. Well, you know where this is going. Because it wasn't more than 60 seconds. I kid you not. I go back inside. I look outside the window again. And she is bringing the chair back to the wall. Doing that which I just told her not to do. And I said to myself, I said, self, I said, yeah. Is she a few peas short of a casserole? Is that what's wrong with this kid? Is her, is her marble not as sharp? Is that what's going on? Is her can, slinky kinked a bit? Is that what's happening here? Is her belt not going through all the loops? My goodness, if she had a canoe, are her oars not in the water? Has her cheese slid off the cracker? I can go on and on and on. What in the world is wrong with my child? Well, it's the sin nature. It's passed down through the mother to the child. Just seeing if you were awake, that's all I was seeing. Let's look at our passage. Jesus said, when tempted, no one should say, God's tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, he gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Each one is tempted by his own evil desire. There were people back in James' time, I guess, that were blaming God for the temptations that they had and for the reason that they gave in to those temptations. I've been a pastor for a long, long time. I've heard some wiggity-whack things in my life. You understand that? Some wiggity-whack things in my life. I remember a woman years ago that came up to me and she said that she had an affair on her husband, but she knew having the affair was God's will. I said, oh, let's play the game. (laughs) How is having an affair on your husband God's will? She said, well, I met the man in church. Well, that's great. That's why Jesus came up with the church, so you could have an affair. That's what that is. On more than one occasion, I kid you not, on more than one occasion, I've had young men and old men come to me and say, my problem with pornography isn't my fault. God made me attracted to beautiful women. So God's to blame. Well, just because you're attracted doesn't mean you have to act on it. And how's God to blame for that? See, it's our own evil desire that drags us away and entices us to do that which we know is wrong. But we will play the blame game to make it right in our minds, won't we? We're always looking for somebody to blame. There there was a husband, he was at the doctor's office, and, and he said to the doc, he said, I'm concerned about my wife's hearing. He said, what seems to be the problem? He said, well, I, I, I ask her questions and she doesn't respond. I, I don't think she can hear me. 
And the doctor said, well, there's an easy test you can take. Just go into the same room that she is with her back turned towards you. And then you ask her a question. And if she doesn't respond, just take a few steps closer to her. Ask the question again. And, and then we'll see how close you get before she responds. That will tell us how, how, how much hearing loss that she's got. He said, well, I think, okay, he said, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. He said, come back and report to me what you find out. So he goes home, and, and luck would have it, she was in the kitchen, and she was preparing the meal for that evening. And so he stands on one side of the kitchen, she's on the other side. He says, hey, what's for dinner? And she doesn't respond. And so he takes a few more steps, and he's about halfway across the kitchen. He says, hey, what's for dinner? And again, she doesn't respond. So he walks up all the way behind her, and he says, hey, what's for dinner? And with that, the wife turns around a little agitated. She said, for the third time, fried chicken. <laughs> Some of you will get that on the ride home. That's funny right there. What do we do? We blame others. There's three things we do with our sin. We blame other people. If, if my wife wasn't so critical, if my husband was so attentive, if my boss would give me more opportunities, I wouldn't be in the fix that I'm in. It's always somebody else's fault, isn't it? For some of us, that's the way you play the game. For others of us, we rationalize it. We say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's not like it's going to hurt anybody, right? Now, you know what I found to be true is, is that we have to talk ourselves into doing the wrong thing. You ever notice that? When you find yourself trying to talk yourself into doing something, you already know you're on the wrong path. Rarely do we have to talk ourselves into doing the right thing. But many times we have to spend a lot of time convincing ourselves to go the wrong direction. Whenever you find yourself looking for a loophole, looking for a way, understand you are now on the path to destruction and it will destroy your life if you act upon it. We play the blame game. We rationalize. We also compare our sins with other people. We say, hey man, compared to that guy over there, I'm not near as bad as they are. I say, what you're saying is, is compared to the next door neighbor, right? The, the wife beaten, beer drinking, porn watching neighbor across the street, you're in pretty good shape, huh? Isn't it funny how we always want to compare ourselves with the worst person we know? But the Bible says who we compare ourselves to is Jesus. So how do you do in that comparison? How do you do compared to the holiness of God? Proverbs 19 verse 3 says, a man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. What does that mean? Well, you do the wrong thing. Now you have consequences to pay for it. So what do you do? You rage against the Lord. You get mad at the Lord. Friends, every evil thing that we've ever done, every temptation that we've ever had all began with an evil thought, didn't it? Years ago, Ed Sheeran wrote a song called Bad Habits. And the song is about his struggle with temptation and with sin. And how he had made promises to change things, that things were going to be different from this point forward, and yet he kept going back to the one thing that he didn't want to do. Well, I googled it to find out what was the issue that he had. It was substance abuse. More specifically, it was alcoholism. And he struggled with his alcoholism to somehow get a foothold to get away from it. And he writes this strong, this song about that struggle. So take a listen to the words. Mm -hmm. 
Every sin you or I have ever fallen into all began with a bad desire, an evil desire that lurks within us. So here's the question we have to contemplate. If you were going to wreck your life, how would you do it? What would be the top three ways, what would be the top three desires that reside inside of you that if you allow them to have control of your life, that they would lead you off a cliff, that they would destroy your life, that they would burn your home down? You know, you have desires, right? Some of them are evil. Some of them are good. Some of them are an issue. Some of them aren't. For example, I know that I'm never going to be tempted with alcohol. It's never been an issue for me. I've never had a beer in my life, never tasted beer. I've never had an alcoholic beverage before, and there's a reason for that. My brother and my sister ruined their lives with alcohol. 
My brother was an alcoholic. My sister, the night that she got in her terrible car wreck and changed the whole course of her life, it was due to drugs and alcohol. I have zero desire to have any of that. I will not give a dime to the alcohol industry. That doesn't make me more spiritual than somebody else. It's just a conviction that I have. I don't want anything to do with that kind of stuff. I'm never going to fall into that trap. I know that for sure. I also know that drugs aren't going to be an issue in my life. I don't need some kind of contact high to make me feel better about who I am and whose I am. Now, I don't know why this was, but the last time I was in Belize, I was offered drugs three times within the first 24 hours of being there. I mean, the people were coming up to me going, you want some weed, man? I was like, no, I don't want no weed. But by the third time somebody asked me if I wanted weed, I thought, is there something about me that's personifying that I need weed? I mean, what is going on that people look at me and go, there's a brother that needs some weed right there, I tell you what. I don't have that stuff. I don't need that stuff. I'm smoking that crazy stuff. I don't need that in my life to feel good about who I am. I, I'm, I got a relationship with Jesus. That's all that matters to me. You say, oh, man, my pastor is really something else. Well, let me tell you something else I'm not tempted to do. I'm not tempted to gossip. I don't talk behind people's backs. I don't tell people's stories that aren't my story to tell. I, I've been gossiped about so much in the course of my life. People have said so many evil and wicked things. And they're untrue. And, and so you go and you start chasing the shadows, right? Because that's what you're doing when you chase a gossip. You're just chasing the shadows. And that's a losing game, isn't it? So you kind of get to a point, point and you say, you know what? I just live my life for an audience of one. And people will make their decisions for themselves. But I'm not going to gossip because I know the hurt that that brings. And I'm not going to put that onto somebody else. Now, some of you are sitting there going, man, my pastor is like a godly man. He's awesome. Well, I have evil desires, too. I'm not going to tell you what they are because none of your business. That's all I got to say about that. <laughs> uh, let, 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 me, let me tell you a couple of them. I still have a bad temper. Now, my wife said to me between services, she said, you're a whole lot better than when we first got married. And I'm glad to, to hear that. Because the person who got my temper more than anybody else was her. She'd say something, she'd do something, and I would, I would lash out and say some mean, terrible thing. And I would do it when my kids were younger. You know you, how you, much you wish you could go back in time and change some of the things you said, some of the things you did. And I knew this was an issue. I mean, when you see fear in your child's eyes, that'll get your attention. And there have been times years ago when we had staff and they would do something stupid or they wouldn't accomplish what they were supposed to on the deadline they were supposed to. And, man, I'd be so rude. I'd be so angry at them. And none of that benefited anybody. Well, I knew this was an area of my life that wasn't in the control of the Holy Spirit of God. And so I began to surrender it every day. You want to get over a bad habit? You surrender it every day. You get gut-wrenching honest about it every single day. You lay it down before the Lord and you surrender your will to His will. You do understand that, right? The issue for you isn't between God's will and Satan's will. It's between God's will and your will. Less of me, more of you. I don't want to be like this. Let me tell you another issue that I've got is that sometimes when I get frustrated, I'll say a choice word. I know it shocks you as much as it shocks me. But I'll say a choice word that I think is perfect for the situation, but isn't honoring to God. At least that's what my wife tells me, so i got to stop that. So I, I pray, set a guard over my mouth that I won't sin against you. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Oh, my Lord, my rock 
and my Redeemer. Don't let me say anything that would discredit you. Don't let me say anything that would wound somebody else and make someone believe that they are less than what you've created them to be. I'll give you another one that I struggle with. Uh, Sometimes when I hear of a situation or see of a situation, my first thought is judgment rather than grace. For all you judgy people out there, let me give you a little bit of advice. I don't think you're ever going to stand before God and him be disappointed in you because you treated people with the same grace he's treated you with. I think we should always fault on the side of grace. So that's another area of my life that I'm trying to give over to the control of God. Sometimes I'm really sarcastic. And I can cut somebody in half with my sarcasm and not even realize that I'm doing it. And I'm working really hard at being more positive and being more of an encourager. So if you could shipwreck your life, if you could make your life less than than what God wants it to be, what's the evil desires that lurk inside of you? Name them. And then keep your eye on them. And then the second question is this. What extraordinary measures are you willing to take to make certain those things don't shipwreck you? What extraordinary measures are you willing to take to make certain that those things that lurk inside of you don't control you and burn your house down to where you lose everything? So how sin begin? It begins with a desire, and then it turns to deception. James says we're dragged away and enticed. That word dragged away is a hunter's term that means to ensnare. Enticed is a fisherman's term that means to be lured by bait. You ever been fishing? I love to go fishing. Uh, fish are some of the dumbest animals, though, that God has ever made, aren't they? They're just as stupid as they can be. You ever sat on, or stood on the side of a lake and you spit in the lake where there's fish and the fish will come over there to try to eat your spit? I mean, that's stupid right there. You understand what I'm saying? Or you throw little pebbles in the water and the fish will come over and try to eat the pebble. And you're like, what is wrong with these fish? Catching a fish isn't that hard. It shouldn't be that difficult, right? You just find out what they like. And so if you're a lake fishing, you get a bobber, you get a hook, you get a worm, you put it on there, you cast out, you wait, the bobber goes down, you throw that fish in. And you're thinking to yourself, how dumb does this fish have to be? I mean, here you got this worm just kind of floating around. Don't they see the hook going through the worm? Don't they see the line going all the way up to my boat where I'm holding my rod and my reel? What's wrong with this fish? I'll tell you what's wrong with him. He didn't see anything. All he can focus on isn't the hook, isn't the line, it's just that worm. He wants that worm. Now, for my friends in Belize, you go out there and fish, you don't use worms, you use sardines. And so they cut these sardines in bits and pieces, then they put them on hooks and we cast out and we wait. And man, immediately there'll be a fish that will catch on to that. Well, we were fishing one day for some yellow-tailed snapper, nothing very big, using small poles, small hooks. Look at what I caught. That's a four-foot barracuda. Barracuda. 35 pounds. I, I ate him. Took me three days. He was delicioso. What is wrong with that barracuda? I mean, here we are in the middle of nowhere, and he sees this little sardine just floating around. What in the whole sardine? Just a little piece of a sardine with a hook going through it. He couldn't resist himself. And that was the fight of a lifetime, and I've been waiting for years to show you this picture. You understand that? That's exciting for me right there. What happens? Well, you see something. And then you convince yourself that you're the exception to the rule. And so you take a bite. And it hooks you. And then you get reeled in. And before you know it, you're filleted. 
and fried. And every one of us in this room and every one of us at home, you got the scars to prove it, don't you? So what's he do? He starts with the desire and then he deceives us and then it goes to disobedience. Write this down if you're taking notes. What you flirt with, you'll fall for. Isn't that good? What you flirt with, you will fall for. And then after you've done whatever it is that you decided to do, whatever it is that you've twisted in your mind that's the right thing to do when you know all along it was the wrong thing to do, you know what happens next, don't you? Well, the guilt comes. The self-condemnation comes. You've all been there. I've been there. You look in the mirror and say, what is wrong with you? How in the world could you have been so deceived? And you're disgusted with yourself. And you're ashamed of what you've done. But here's what's interesting. Rather than running to God and asking for his forgiveness, we run away from him. Because we're certain. Because the voices in our head begin to shout at us, don't they? God could never love you. God could never forgive that. You call yourself a Christian and you did that? You're no more a Christian than anybody else you've ever met. Look at the disgusting thing that you just did. And so rather than running to God, you run away from him. But you take your sin with you, and you become a slave to the sin. What started off as just a couple of lies, well, now you're a liar. What started off as just a couple of beers, well, now you're a raging alcoholic. What started off with just kind of flirting, now you're in a full-blown affair. James says that after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. The wages of sin is death. Death of a family. Death of a marriage. Death of a friendship. The death of your dreams. The death of your integrity. So how do we make certain that this doesn't happen to us? Now, I'll give you two pieces I think would be helpful. One, you've got to surrender those evil desires to the Lord, and you have to do it every single day. You never take your eyes off of it. You know that that's your greatest weakness, and so you do everything in your power. You fix your eyes on Jesus, and you lay it down before him, and you say, my Strength is weak, but your strength is strong. You take this from me. You change my perspective. Help me to run as far away from this as I possibly can. And you do it every single day. I don't care what it is. You keep surrendering it over and over and over again. The second thing that I would encourage you to do is play the what's next game. Play out the sin if you engage in it. What happens next? So what you flirt with, you fall for. So let's play the game that you're flirting with a coworker. Most people who have an affair, they have it with someone that they work with or they have it with their spouse's friend because that's who you're spending the most time with. So you're flirting with this person and it's getting more than just flirting. And you're looking for opportunities to see each other and spend time with each other. And it moves from flirting to physical touch. And so you end up in bed. So play the game. You begin to flirt. What's the next step? Well, you end up in bed together. Okay, so what's the next step? Well, you had some fun, right? Some sinful fun. Sin is fun for a season. But then what's next? 
Guilt is what's next. Shame is what's next. You get to live in the shadows from this point forward. And you become very paranoid. Because you know at some point in time that what you did is going to come out. And so you keep waiting for the other shoe to drop, right? You wait for that moment, that time when you didn't delete that text in time. You didn't get rid of that phone number in time. You you didn't take care of what you needed to take care of to conceal it. And all of a sudden, your spouse finds out what you've done. So what's next? Now you get to have the conversation nobody wants to have. Imagine that conversation. What's next? Bring your kids in. Because you get to tell them what you did. What's next? You lose your friends, and they will side against you, and you will lose everyone that was close to you, and that closeness to God that you long for, that's shot in the head too, because your sin will put a distance between you and the Lord until you repent of it and come clean over what you've done. What's next? You get to move out of the house. What's next? You get a divorce. Because most people can't overcome that kind of betrayal. What's next? You end up living in a van down by the river. We needed a little joke there, didn't we? Is it worth it? Listen to me, friends. Nobody in their right mind would ever say that's worth it. That's the problem with sin. You're never in your right mind. Because if you played the what next game and you saw everything you were going to lose for that momentary pleasure, you'd say, that's not worth it to lose all of this. So you play the what's next game. John Weiss is a pastor and his son is on a baseball team, one of those little league teams, and they travel a little bit from here, there, and yonder, and they were at this one particular hotel, and it was kind of a rundown hotel. You probably have stayed in one of these at some point in your life. You thought the reviews were going to be great, but it wasn't what you thought it was. John said in his book, he said, this was the kind of hotel where you leave your clothes and your shoes on when you lay in the bed. That's that kind of a hotel right there. So they're at the pool. The kids are all swimming around having a good time. And, and John is sitting there when two guys come in. One sits to the right side of him. The other sits to the left side of him. They're obviously together. They're friends. And uh, they begin to talk to each other. And they, they've got a six-pack of beer. Each of them got their own six-pack of beer. And they're pretty inebriated already. So the conversation begins to happen between the two of them. And John kind of joins in the conversation as well. And John finds out from these two guys that they're on the run from police. Well, the more inebriated they got, the more loose their tongues became. And so they shared why they were on the run from the police. These were drug runners. They were drug dealers. They sold drugs for a living. And so John is in, the, in between these two guys thinking to himself, I hope they don't kill me, you know. And then they started having a competition about the scars that they had on their body. And so the one guy took his shirt off and showed the, his armpit. And he said, this is where my old lady stabbed me. And where there was once an armpit, now there was just a big old hollow hole that was there. Well, not to be outdone, the other guy said, well, that's nothing. He raised up his shirt, said, I was shot with a shotgun. I don't have a belly button. John, not to be outdone by those two, raised up his pant leg and said, I got this scar riding my bike in the fifth grade. <laughs> they asked him if he wanted something for the pain. He said no. Back and forth they went. John got to share about the fact he's a pastor. Got to share about the fact that Jesus had changed his life. Got to share Jesus with them. And one of them turned to John and said, what do you think we should do? And then John said something very profound. 
He said you can't hide and heal at the same time. You need to come clean. And this is what one of them said. He said, I can't do it. I wish I could. But I can't. And that's where some of you are at today. You're hiding. Hiding in your sin. And you're not healing. And there's a distance between you and God. And there's an emptiness inside of you. And it's time to come clean. The greatest thing I ever did in my life was ask Jesus to be the leader and forgiver of my soul. To take my sin and throw it as far as the east is from the west. The greatest decision I ever made in my life was to have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. To have Jesus by my side to lead me and to guide me. Oh, friends, I am a great sinner. But he is a great savior. And so you gotta, you got to come clean. you got to be honest about your sin condition. And you got to come to the conclusion that you don't want to live this way anymore. You don't want to be a slave to sin anymore. You want the freedom that only Jesus can bring. And that's what I've been praying so hard for you this past week. That we would all come to our senses and realize that the Jesus way of doing life is so much better than our way of doing life. Oh, friends, there is a path that we think is going to be so great and so wonderful, but the Bible says it ends in destruction. But there is a narrow road, and few find it, and it leads to eternal life. So here's what's going to happen. We're going to give you an opportunity to get things right with the Lord. For some of you, it's going to be a first-time decision. You say, you know what? I'm just tired of living this way. I'm tired of being empty. I want Jesus to come and take control of my life. And so we're going to have a time where we're going to sing a song, and the pastors will be here at the front. You're going to be the very first one to come down, extend your hand to that pastor and say, I want Jesus in my life. Others of you, you've prayed before and asked Christ in your life. You've not lived it. And those secret sins, those evil desires are ruining you. It's time for you to make a new commitment to the Lord. It's time for you to say, you know what? I'm tired of playing this game. I'm tired of still feeling empty. I'm tired of being led by my desires and looking in the mirror and not liking what I see. I've got to get my life right with the Lord. I'm going to pray. And we're going to stand. We're going to sing. I want you to be the first one to come down. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Please, through the power of your Holy Spirit, may you win this battle in this moment. Because everything inside of us is telling us to stay in our seat. Everything inside of us is telling us that we can figure it out on our own. But we know better. If we could have made the changes that are necessary in our life, we would have already done them. We need you. We cannot become the person that you created us to be in our own power, in our own strength. God, help us to realize that. Help us to realize our great need. And Lord, when that first word is sung, may we run to you. May we run to your embrace, knowing that when we take one step towards you, you come running for us. Not to slam us, but to welcome us home. So give us strength and give us courage in this moment. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.